0: Something old and something new. This is chapter 218 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa T, and coming up, we chat with author Deanna Rayborn, whose new contemporary novel is about her words older women doing something kick ass. Then Leslie Klinger reintroduces us to a classic gothic monster story. It's sometimes the case that the older a woman gets, the more invisible she feels. Well, for the group of aging female assassins in the new novel from Deanna Rayborn, that tendency to be overlooked is actually their secret weapon. In Killers of a Certain Age, four sixty something spies are sent on a cruise for their retirement only to find themselves the target. What follows is a hilarious cat and mouse game where you can't help but root for the ladies who've spent their whole lives killing people. So there aren't a lot, if any, spy novels featuring 60-something-year-old women. When did you decide that this was the kind of book you wanted to write?
1: You know, actually my publisher came to me and said, we would love a book about older women doing something kick-ass and we think you would be the greatest person to write it. So what do you think? And I went off and I thought about it and I said, yeah, I I would love to do, I I mean, the brief was open-ended. I could do anything I wanted with these older women. I could put them in any sort of adventure, any sort of setting. And I came back and said, yeah, I'd love to, but I want it to be a contemporary and I want them to be killers. Uh, and to their eternal credit, my publisher said, sure, we can do that, (laughs) which I think they were mildly terrified because I'd never written a contemporary before. Um, and they, they took a chance on it and thank God they did because I had so much fun writing this book.
0: Tell us a little bit more about what you wrote about, which is essentially a quartet of female assassins.
1: They are. There are four women who were recruited in 1979 when they were in college. And they've basically been together uh, for the last 40 years, killing people who need killing uh, in, the, in the estimation of the organization they work for. And a lot of times they work on missions independently, but they do still see each other on a fairly regular basis. They work together occasionally and they know each other in a way that other people never know them because they have this work that they do together which is so strange and you know it's work that they can't really talk about so they confide in each other and they just get each other so it's partially the story of of what they do just to survive when their organization turns on them but it also is just a little bit about a female friendship you know comprising these four women that spans four decades
0: And we get to meet these women when they're about to retire. And I Mm -hmm. think there are a lot of women who maybe feel this way if they're of that age, that they get to this point where people don't think they can do their job that well anymore. And your women kind of prove everybody wrong.
1: (laughs) Well, they don't have a choice because, you know, it's very much kill or be killed. And so they, they are thrown back on their experience and just on their own resources. You know, we all love the James Bond films because of Q, because of all the great gadgets. And my assassins have had access to, you know, hackers and weaponry and all sorts of really cool information. And over the course of this book, they don't have that. So they have to fall back on nothing more than their experience and their own skills. And they step up.
0: I love that every kind of woman is represented in this book. We've got older women, younger women, those who are tech savvy, those, those that don't know how to turn on a computer, queer, straight. <laughs> I mean, there's even a pregnant woman in this character, a character in this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was really important to me to kind of show, you know, what what womanhood looks like, that it, it you know, it the whole point of this book was not to write about just 25 year old, you know, flawless, gorgeous Mary Sue type character who's, you know, a blue eyed blonde and finding the hunky guy. It was it was to to do something um, that you don't see as much of, which is women who are 60 at the center of all of the action, um, and and to see kind of the broad scope of that because the 60 year old women don't exist in a vacuum either. They've got younger friends. They've got you know one of our characters has a wife. We've got Um, executives who are in their 30s and trying to balance everything in their lives. You know, how do I how do I have a baby and succeed in my career? And so I think across the board, most people will find somebody I think that they can identify with a little bit and say, yeah, I've been there.
0: Tell me why this book is for those who identify female and have rage
1: because I've been mad since 2016. And I think a lot of us have. And I feel like we're only, you know, I I thought we were getting a little accustomed and reconciled to our anger. And then over this past summer, it feels like it's been rekindled. And there's kind of a, a, an accidental zeitgeist thing happening with this book where it was like the right book For the mood of the time. Uh, It was certainly the right book for me to write to kind of deal with the fact that, at you know, in my early 50s, I'm feeling more powerless in some ways than I have up to that point because, you know, I see that so many of the things that we thought we could take for granted, that we thought we could rely upon, can be taken away if we're not paying attention. And that just ticks me off.
0: Is that why there's such a big body count in this book?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because that's one of the things that always happens when I write my historical mysteries is uh, I'll get notes saying, could we have fewer bodies? And in this book, it was like as many bodies as you want. You can kill as many people off as you want. And so I tried to give most of my characters uh, who get killed off at least one characteristic where you think "Eh, it's not such a big loss. It's fine.
0: (laughs) It's fine. And that all being said, though, this book is a really fun read. There are a lot of laughs. And I have to ask you a very serious question because this might come in handy down the road for me one day. (laughs) Is non-dairy creamer really flammable?
1: Yes, it is. That is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But this is where I issue the disclaimer and say, please do not use anything you read in this book as a how-to. Okay, this is not a manual. We're not teaching people how to go out and do these things. This is, this is just for fun.
0: <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. So I have to know, is this a one and done story?
1: All I can tell you is people are talking. Discussions are being had. And that's all I can say.
0: I love hearing that. And <laughs> I do have one more uh, quick little note before I let you go, because I know you have a lot of interviews lined up today. Why was even the author, and I say that with quotes around it what was the decision to make that person a character as well?
1: You know, because that felt like a very natural way for me to get inside the story and to tell it and to make it also uh, connect a little bit more closely to the reader because it's almost as if Billy... Who is uh, one of our four main assassins is inviting you in and telling you a story, and I loved that idea of of connecting as closely as possible with readers. And my husband says the book reads like my Twitter feed, so it it, it feels like I'm I'm talking to Twitter followers through this book uh, in a in a weird way.
0: Oh, and, see, and I got the impression, maybe this is just me because of the way I read it, I thought maybe the author was someone who wasn't in the core group and had somebody who had all this knowledge about what had happened, but was looking at it from the outside.
1: And you know what? That is a perfectly legitimate interpretation. And I love that you had that.
0: <laughs> well, thank you.
1: There are no wrong answers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I-, I lied. There's one more question.
1: Sure. Is there
0: any chance we'll get a chance to like binge this on Netflix?
1: So again, all I can tell you and discussions are being had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that you know, that's the appropriate answer when we're talking about a book of secret female assassins with an organi- a right? secret organization. So it's very cryptic. So it, it's it, very it's cryptic. Perfectly. <laughs> We've been chatting with Deanna Rayborn. The new book is Killers of a Certain Age. That's a killer title, by the way. Thank you so much for your time I today. I did not
1: come up with it. I cannot take credit, but yes, it is an amazing title. Thanks, Deanna. Thank you so much, Lisa.
0: The fight between good and evil is as old as time and has inspired a countless number of writers. One of the classic tales of this biblical battle is the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The Robert Louis Stevenson novella gets a fresh take in a new annotated edition, which, in addition to the usual footnotes, pay special attention to earlier drafts of the story we know today. There are also photos, movie stills, and illustrations from numerous retellings of the classic monster tale. I spoke with annotator Leslie Klinger about the new annotated strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. My first question is, after now having reread this story, which it's been quite a while, what is it about the story and the character of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that has allowed it to endure for over a hundred years?
2: That's a good question, because um, although I have focused um, a great deal in my uh, work on 19th century fiction, I'm only interested in those things that have uh, that kind of iconic uh, interest about them. The, 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 the part of it is is commercial, of course. The publishers only want books that people are actually going to read, which is really short-sighted enough. But I, I think the answer to the question is that the topic um, and the central theme is timeless. It has nothing to do with the Victorian age. It has nothing to do with the science. Um, it's about the dual nature of humans, which hasn't changed one bit. Um, and so when you read the book, um, and, and, and the movies are different, by the way. I mean, We'll, we'll talk about that a bit. But when you read the book and you understand what it's really about, There is nothing Victorian about it. Now, the Victorian elements are important because um, it was an especially hypocritical time, but that hypocrisy still exists, the hypocrisy that people are somehow innately good or all good or whatever.
0: Or even that they're able to, uh, like, tamp down the part of them that is not good or yes. even maybe make up for the bad things they do because the other 50 or 60 percent of the time they're good.
2: Right. Uh, uh You know, the famous observation by G.K. Chesterton that the, the great surprise of the book is not that uh, the, that Jekyll and Hyde um, are two different people? The great su- in the same person. The the great surprise is that they're the same person.
0: Nowadays, everyone, even if they've never read the novella, know the the twist to the story. But what was the reception like when the story first came out in eighteen eighty
2: six? Well, it was a mixture. I mean, there was there was a shock certainly, and it, and it was regarded as a mystery. Um, uh, how is it possible? And and one of the things, someone asked me what was the great surprise to me when I read this book again? Um, what did I discover that I hadn't really recalled? And it was the the meticulous craftsmanship that as you read through the story, it is a big surprise when you read it for the first time um, to see how carefully he's constructed this mystery and and the solution is so neat. The solution that it's the same person explains all these truly strange things. So I think for many readers it was a great shock and surprise. Um, there was a, a great deal of sort of moral fervor about it. It's like you know, oh, that can't be possible. We're better than that. You know, he's wrong. Uh, we're we're more we're more angelic than that. We're good natured, etc. So there was a certain denial going on by the public as well, but it was a sensational success. Uh, They put it out in a shilling edition originally. And and I think Stevenson kind of he called it a shilling shocker that he had written, um, meaning a sort of a pulp work. He didn't think very highly of it in the beginning.
0: Wouldn't he be surprised all these years later to see that you've now gone along and written this annotated version. Tell us what readers can expect to encounter when they pick up this book.
2: Well, one of the things that they can find that I think is unique about this edition, and it interests me and I hope it interests readers, is to see the textual changes, um, to see how the actual crafting of the story took place, how it went through different versions and, and became the final version. Um, Stevenson was a meticulous craftsman um, and we can see it by because I compared the various drafts of the story. Um, so that's unique to this annotated edition. Um, but what I hope they'll also see is a lot of, um, excuse it, it's mansplaining, you know, it's sort of like uh, there, there's a lot of uh, background uh, because we don't really speak Victorian English anymore if we ever did here in America. Uh, and. We aren't familiar with the social customs, um, what the relationships between these people would be. So there's a lot of notes explaining that sort of stuff. I have often said that these books that I annotate don't need me to be better. Um, What I hope to do is to bring more excitement to the reader, more interest to the readers, to sort of flesh it. Kind of like the director's track on a DVD. Um, If you haven't read the story, and I'm glad you did, if you haven't read the story in a long time, read it first. Don't read the notes.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll admit I I found the experience, uh, you know, so much richer when you have, you know, an expert like yourself. Basically, like you're sitting alongside you and saying, wait, you should pay attention to that. And this is why the author wrote this. But also at the same time you know being able to see the different drafts and you have them as an appendix in in the back of the book as well i think a lot of people who are interested in books and interested in the writing process they always wonder how do authors get to whatever that final product is and 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 this book yes. in particular really lays that out
2: well i'm glad that you had that positive reaction uh, this this whole thing of being an annotator i think probably started the first time i we went to a movie with my wife and talk to the screen. And, uh, you know, some people find it really annoying.
0: <laughs> well, I could imagine if you were talking during a movie, maybe I wouldn't like you as much.
2: <laughs> Watch this part. Ooh, see how that connects to this and so on. Yes. Why would you do that?
0: <laughs> so how did you decide that, you know, being an annotator is something you wanted to do?
2: Well, it was a matter of um, admiration. When I was in law school, um, and that's what I do by day, by the way, um, when I was in law school, I received a gift of a magnificent book called The Annotated Sherlock Holmes by William Baring Gould. That came out in 1968, revealing my age here. Uh, And I was fascinated by the footnotes, um, by this whole cult of amateur scholarship and I thought that someday maybe I would get to update that book and and I did and I enjoyed the process so much it it so fit my personality which is not a nice thing to say about myself uh (laughs) that I wanted to do it more after I'd done the Sherlock Holmes books and um so just kept going it I, I like trivia um, I like finding things that other people haven't find. I like digging into the obscurities of, of some of these books. And so it's it's a natural fit.
0: And what is it me. in particular about Victorian era literature that excites you?
2: Well, several things. First of all, the, the Victorian era itself is, is I think, vitally important. If we're going to understand what went on in the 20th century, the revolutions of the 20th century, and the things that continued to be um, um, important issues in the 21st century, the rights of women, the rights of persons of color, people of color, and so on. All of those revolutions began in the 19th century. Um, and, And so the history of the 19th century is vitally important. Second, it was a time of great contrasts between ideals and realities, I think. And so it generated these iconic figures, Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, Frankenstein's creature, Jekyll and Hyde, and they still fascinate modern audiences. So all of that made it appealing to me to look at. Um, In the course of doing Sherlock Holmes, I assembled a lot of Victorian resources and said, okay, i can do other books with this as well
0: so if people have been paying attention to this conversation they will remember that you mentioned at the top about the film editions of jekyll and Hyde and how different they were from from the actual story itself why don't we get into that a little bit
2: sure well not surprisingly um the films have simplified the story and and generally have depicted poor dr jekyll um as a victim of uh, having let loose uh something that wasn't natural something that was evil um and, and that as we've talked about is a very distorted view of the story uh, the story became quickly very similar in some ways to frankenstein uh, it became a story about science gone wrong be careful what you look at as a scientist because you may find things that you don't uh you don't want to know um and, and they became almost morality plays but they were extremely popular so I mean stage plays were were written almost immediately um and uh and very early film I mean there's some there's some wonderful early silent films and of course magnificent actors took on the role it became it became one of those roles for actors I mean I don't want to quite compare it with Hamlet but this challenge to to play two characters Um, uh, so it attracted actors like uh, frederick march and john barrymore and spencer tracy um some of the great actors of our ages
0: you mentioned that it 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 evolved into like this morality type of thing about science but i did find it really interesting and i learned it from one of your notes that um stevenson himself really didn't care for the science and there really is no the, the, like a scientific process what have you within the story itself
2: that's right and again it's very similar to frankenstein in that respect i mean mary shelley was no scientist if you read it carefully it it doesn't say how the monster was was brought to life there are <clears throat> there are suggestions that it had something to do with electricity but not quite uh and and the science was unimportant to said stevenson it was all about the The nature of humans that he wanted to explore. And this was, of course, a great moral topic of the day. Um, the Victorians were um, very pious, um, pious, outwardly pious. They were great believers in form, propriety of action and all that. So this notion that humans were innately, partly evil, um, was was very contrary to the Victorians' view that they could be um, uh, ideal, ideally that they could be well-behaved, um, civilized human beings.
0: And we're really talking about the upper crust of Victorian society, w- w- who had these high opinions of themselves and what one, what, whatever side they showed outwardly, publicly, and then whatever they did behind their closed doors
2: certainly um uh, the middle class of course was trying to ape the upper class um they wanted to be like them they weren't as as successful in the aping as they would like to be because they couldn't afford to be but and certainly the the lower classes uh knew perfectly well that people were not innately good and uh proper but um no it was it was it was a popular view that that people were not quite as well as they as they see, people were not as good as they seem. Popular in the lower classes, yes.
0: What do you want readers to take away from reading this version of the story?
2: Um, I think what I hope that they will get from this that is is the craftsmanship that they will come away from this book saying, "I never appreciated how great an artist Stevenson was." Um, people remember Stevenson for Treasure Island, Kidnapped. Um, Charles Gardner versus those kinds of works. Uh, this is one of his adult works. And he wrote other adult works as well, but how amazing. This is a work of genius. It, it was, it was crafted in a very short period of time. We can talk a little bit about, how about sort of how it came to be, but um, it's so perfectly put together. All the pieces fit so beautifully. And that's what I hope that they will see. Uh, is is the gem like precision of this story?
0: So, what was or the the genesis of the story and him writing it?
2: Well, it was a dream in in many ways. It's it it wasn't um, dictation from God, to use the line from uh, from Amadeus, but uh, the process went something like this. I mean, I think that Stevenson had been fascinated by this idea of the duality of man's nature for a long time. And he wanted to write a story about it. And certainly he was thinking about it. Um, He was quite ill. Um, He was frequently ill. He had um, um, respiratory issues. And he was taking drugs that quite naturally had a good deal of cocaine in them because that was the Victorian standard. So he had a very vivid dream in which he saw the scene at the window in which uh, uh, Utterson, the narrator, sees for the first time uh, Jekyll and and understands that something bad is going on here. It sees and and then later hears about Hyde, um, and that became an inspiration for him to write the story that he wrote. He did not. He said he says his brownies which by which he means is unconscious, sort of wrote the rest of it. Uh, But he poured out the story in a very short period of time. Um, And then, interestingly, showed it to his wife, Fanny, who was uh, herself a writer and uh, very interested in his work. And she hated it. Uh, (laughs) She thought it was um, probably she thought it was too sexual, uh, which is very interesting because there is no women characters in the story uh, of any note, Uh, but she thought it was too sexual and uh, he burned it. This is the story anyway. It's not quite clear that he actually did this, but um, she reported that he burned it Uh, and then rewrote it from scratch. And uh, he he wrote it in a very short period of time and there it is, so.
0: And a uh, uh, hundred plus years later, we're still sitting here talking about it.
2: Yes, uh, and and I think we will continue to talk about it. I don't I don't think that the moral issues, um, what Stevenson called the the war of the members, that that old war of the members, uh, is ever going to go away. Um, it's uh, it's interesting that Stevenson himself, uh, it being a Victorian product. Didn't write about women um in this book, but certainly later, others, uh, at least in films, explored this as well. We have Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, for example, uh, and others where this is not uh, I, with all with all respect, Lisa this is not a, a problem limited to men,
0: no, no, of course not. And you would never find me making that argument. I think as long as there are humans, that this will be a constant battle within our, each of ourselves and within so- society between good and evil is the consummate fight, right?
2: Yes. And uh, that's right. And, and uh, you know, if there is a moral here, it's don't give up control. Uh, I mean, Jekyll is certainly spending his time um, trying to make amends for whatever his sins were when he was young. We're not quite sure whether that was um prostitutes or whether that was um uh, homosexual activities we don't know what it is that he feels guilty about That there's just vague hints of what it is that when he was younger he he wasn't a very nice person um and and he seems to be now trying to make up for that um but uh his great downfall is this idea that he could somehow wipe out um, the evil side. Of it. Rem- remember that he does this intentionally. He does this because he wants to be good. He wants to be 100% good. And he thinks by segregating the bad parts of himself, he can achieve that, that virtue um, rather than doing what you said, which is learning to integrate your personality and deal with the impulses and the and the natural aspects of ourselves.
0: So, have you stumbled upon your next subject
2: well there's been a good deal of discussion about it um the publisher and and this is a new publisher for me it's an old friend of mine otto Penzler, and his mm-hmm. press called mysterious press and uh um, we've talked a lot about the next book i've been pitching the idea of the lodger not a book that's very well known this is a book by uh, marie belloc Lowndes and was published in 1910 or so, uh, very focused on Jack the Ripper. It was made into a brilliant Hitchcock film, and it's all about the Ripper. I'm not sure that'll be the book. We're leaning also toward uh, Wells's Invisible Man, um, and that may turn out to be our next book.
0: Well, we've been talking with Leslie Klinger. The new book is The New Annotated Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thank you so much for your time today.
2: My pleasure, Lisa.
0: that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time we check in with a couple of authors who we featured in earlier episodes of this very podcast. Until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. And don't forget all of our back episodes can be found on the free Odyssey app. Keep turning those pages. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.